This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on News Radio 680 WPTF. 60 minutes devoted to giving you all the information you need when caring for a loved one. With Nicole Claygood and Cooper Linton, here's the host of Aging Matters, Jason Kong. Welcome to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care on News Radio 680 WPTF. Jason Kong here with uh, the wonderful cast. The wonderful cast. We've been upgraded. We've been, I, I think I, you were already there. I got upgraded. <laughs> the lovely Nicole Cleggett with Transitions Guiding Lights. I'm so glad to be here, as always. The lovely Cooper Linton <laughs> with Transitions I, Life Care. I was just going to go for reasonably or modestly competent. That was no, all I was no, looking no. for I'm, this evening. I'm feeling... I'm feeling happy this evening and generous. Yeah, quite generous, generous. I was just yes. going to say. Yes, I'm. I'm feeling the love, so I'm. I'm giving you the lovely title as well as Nicole. So, Thank you, you Jason. you've got it. You've Honestly, got it. I, I just feel more fetching already. <laughs> <laughs> Jason Kong here as well on another fine Saturday evening, and we're going to jump right in because we've got uh, a topic that is is of kind of paramount importance when it comes to caregiving, and we're going to get into the legal side of things. Well, we, we touch on this topic repeatedly for a reason, and it is because it is almost, almost invariably, if we can use those that language, the most popular topic we have at caregiver summits. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a topic that shows up uh, in the Facebook program that uh, you, Nicole, coordinate, yeah. uh, Caregiver's Corner. We keep seeing issues rev- uh, emerging about legal concerns, uh, legal planning, or maybe conversely, the absence of legal planning mm-hmm. and what comes out of that. So where do you want to get started this evening? You know, I think one of the issues that families often talk to us about, which um, does come up time and time again, is the confusion of, you know, even things like how, how do things get paid for and how do I move my loved one's assets around to get things paid for. Once people realize pretty much everything's out of pocket, then they think about, well, how can I make it so it doesn't have to be out of pocket? It's well, and I think confusing. they make some assumptions of who's, who has control and who mm-hmm. doesn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a child, therefore my child can manage my money. Right, right. And they just may automatically make that assumption that that's the case when a lot of times it just is not. Mm. We, we uh, recently dealt with a caregiving situation where the assumption was there was a power of attorney. Mm-hmm. There was no power of attorney of any kind for anybody. Mm-hmm. And that creates just a couple of rubs when it comes time to pay the electric bill. You know, this just this past weekend, I was at a wedding and was talking to a great aunt and uncle. And I don't even know. How, I always do this to people, but I start asking them about their advance directives, even when it's not appropriate. Yeah, that's you why know. you're popular. So, you know, I just I'm a you're real the life of the party. I'm yeah. really a party killer sometimes. And did you talk to them about mortality? Yeah, kind of. Yeah. Care. What were Good. your future thoughts? And, Good. you know, Good. <laughs> And they have not touched their advance directives in 30 years. Plenty of, the, the, nothing you know? <laughs> changes in 30 years, really. Why and should so, we check? So I just started sitting there and I just started saying, well, you know, do you recall who you've even named? Well, it was this one particular child, but we've been thinking that maybe that child wouldn't be the best one to make our decision, but we feel like we have to have that child named. Well, and After 30 years, is the person that you named still alive? Well, in this I'm, case, I think it was, but, well, that's good, but, but I think it might have had some... Uh, Maybe it's not quite as responsible as they thought it was going to be. <laughs> well, yeah. Not everybody. Things evolve mm-hmm. in far less than 30 years. After 30 years, come on. Well, and they also came from another state, so their advanced directives were from clear across the country, which, as may you know, or may not be as reflective of North Carolina law as they had hoped. 
So that, you know, that that really gets to be confusing. And I think a lot of times, you know, even in dealing with my own family, when I try to bring up the topic, it, you know, here I, I preach this and I beat a dead horse on a daily basis with folks, but um, people just sometimes just don't even want to talk about it. It just gets very uncomfortable and, you know. Well, it's interesting. People are happy to talk about their wills and testaments. Mm-hmm. Final will and testament. They were willing to talk about that and what they're going to leave behind or what they're not going to leave Maybe. behind. <laughs> well, they're not necessarily really ready to think about it. They're just ready to talk about it. Yeah. When you talk about the issues that impact their living, mm-hmm. the stuff that they've got to live with, not necessarily decisions that they go on, they're going to leave behind, I find it really changes the dialogue. It does. And, and I think it brings up the whole issue of mortality you know well i'm going to live forever and so far so good well and i think you have a pretty funny quote i think i'd like you to share about mortality <laughs> life is the ultimate sexually transmitted disease uh, <laughs> oh, brother. It, and i have acquired it uh, and i believe most of our listenership has uh, if you're upset by that please consult with your parents i believe they were the folks from whence you contracted it so there's no doubt we're all going to die yeah, well, that's also why I'm popular at cocktail parties, too. <laughs> so you and I should never go to one together. No, no. We'd be sitting we at don't. a table alone. <laughs> no, we don't. We torture our spouses. Um, so these issues related to how do you plan for how are you living, mm-hmm. how does that impact your family, how does that impact your loved ones, mm-hmm. uh, and then what is that? how does that get into asset management? Because mm-hmm. there's really no way to start talking about legal issues without them impacting financial issues. There are mm-hmm. almost always, there's a Venn diagram between those two topics. Uh, and it is possible that not all families are in agreement. And so there could be some quibbling sibling, as I've heard it called. Over the assets, but then you know, it's over the bedside where families completely get destroyed. It's, well, it's during absolutely. those end-of-life decisions when a family standing around a loved one who has some sort of a terminal condition and folks have to make a decision of what to do, what to withdraw, what to provide, and, and everybody has a different opinion of what mom would have wanted. So people think they're going to make a better decision in an emotionally charged, sleep-deprived, strange situation than they will uh, being able to gather in a normal living room and have cogent dialogue. Well, it works. I've seen it time and time again. It blows up. So <laughs> it turns into an absolute emotional storm most of the time. It doesn't always. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, that recipe of high emotion, unresolved family issues, um, honestly, confusion about trajectory of care, mm-hmm. um, and honestly, sleep deprivation. A yep. lot of this stuff happens in the middle of the night, and then families come together and it's not usually pretty unless there's a plan in place and there's a set of documents that capture those plans. Uh, and I think too much of this is folks trying to go it on their own. And then if there isn't a set of documents that cover the plan, there's sort of an order of operations of how it goes, which may or may not be who you'd want to make that decision. So there's a, a kind of a, a, a algorithm in North Carolina statute that if there are no documents in place... And no one's agreeing... <laughs> right. There's a there's a kind of an algorithm, and, I, and as opposed to me talking about it, I'd rather actually have an mm-hmm. attorney discuss that today. But uh, the way I have phrased it is that statute was written by the North Carolina legislature. And so if you are happy letting the same folks that run the North Carolina school systems run your personal health care decisions, then just roll the dice and go with the state statute. But personally, I'd like to have a little input on my health care decisions. 
Well, and I think another big challenge with even talking about legal issues has to do with just the financial impact. And a lot of these families are in these sometimes very long 10, 15, 20-year caregiving journeys, as I as I call it. Sometimes some folks listening say, this is not a journey. This is not fun at all. Uh, no, but but in depending on how you didn't say it was a fun trip. We just <laughs> said it's right. a journey. It's a journey. Um, and so then you do, there's just the costs all start mounting up as well. And so I think sometimes people, just like with the preventative maintenance of the car, people sometimes let some of the most important things go by the wayside, and then it really blows up big in the end. So we were joking earlier that the three, three most expensive places you can ever save money, uh, particularly around elder care, are with an attorney, mm-hmm. an accountant, and probably a plumber or electrician. Um, there are quite, they're not too many things quite as financially motivating as a backed up plumbing system, I'm just <laughs> going to say. Uh, but when we start looking at legal issues and the financial issues, saving money and doing it yourself sometimes can be incredibly expensive and painful. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm super excited today that we have an amazing guest with us who also. Um, has been a presenting sponsor for our caregiver summits, which has been a great gift to our community. And again, we do have some upcoming caregiving summits and without the support of a sponsor such as this one, we wouldn't be able to put these on. And so having Mark Costley, who's gonna be speaking to us today, be here today, He's awesome. He's wonderful. He has great knowledge, and he's also going to be at the next three caregiver summits, too. He's also too. an extremely good teacher. He, he's yes. able to make things that seem theoretical uh, uh, available to the lay mind like mine. Truly, the room's bust at the seams. Excellent, and we will dive into that in just a bit. We'll have plenty of questions for Mark, and we'll get to hear his expertise. Stick around. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care on News Radio 680 WPTF. This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on News Radio 680 WPTF. Joined by Nicole Cleggett from Transitions Guiding Lights and Cooper Linton from Transitions Life Care. Here's your host, Jason Kong. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care on News Radio 680 WPTF. You can find more about Transitions Life Care at transitionslifecare.com. Dot org. Jason Kong here with Cooper Linton and Nicole Cleggett. And Cooper, I'll allow you to introduce our guest here in the studio. Well, I think uh, Nicole already kind of uh, warmed the audience up a little bit, but we are really excited to have Mark Costley back. We've had him in the past, uh, usually by telephone. We're actually privileged to have him in the studio with us today. He is the uh, lead attorney and founder of with Clarity Legal Group, uh, based out of Chapel Hill, but you guys serve a pretty broad area. And when it comes to doing teaching and education as a gift to your community, you actually cover a very broad territory. You're covering, I believe, four counties this year. At least, at least four. with us. Yeah, with yeah. us, it's at least four. People come from much further than that, but you're actually doing programmatic training in four counties. Uh, so we appreciate that. And I wanted to throw a question out to you that's been on my mind. I, I've about decided I don't need lawyers anymore. I've got the internet, and I can look up LegalZoom and half a dozen other sites, and it seems to me that that ought to cover all my needs. Well, I'm being a little bit tongue in cheek, Cooper. Great, you started with a with a with a really uh, powerful question, and uh, I think a lot of people do look for easy answers for everything in life. And uh, and you were saying, well, gee, legal planning is a, is a, is a time to avoid that. But I, I think that that's really true, and that's because it's really impossible, I think, to just download documents and know whether or not you got it right. Okay? So you're planning for this really important thing, 
and you're planning for something that by definition, it's almost certain you've never dealt with before. You said you said before, every, we're, we're all terminal. We got a 100% chance of dying. And I always say, yeah, and how many times do we get to do it? Well, yeah, we once. We never take once. Yeah. once. So, that, so there's no opportunity for a dry run. So, so I, I tell people that your legal documents that you need in connection with estate planning or, or elder care planning are like toolboxes. Uh-huh. But they're like lots of different toolboxes, each one intended for a specific job. And there are two components to each box. One is you have to know what tools you need. Uh-huh. And I don't know if you're any different than me, but I don't know what tools I need until I've gotten into the job. So if I've, if I've repaired a, a, a piece of equipment before or if I built something before, I know what I need. But if I've never done it before, I don't know what I need until I get into it and I run down to, to Lowe's or Home Depot and I buy it in the middle of the that's project. That's why they know me by first name at Lowe's, yes. Right. So that's, uh, that's a reality that you, you, if, if you haven't been through the process of, 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 of administering an estate or, or, or caring for someone who, uh, who, who needs help, you don't know what all the tools are. Well, and it's a brutally steep learning curve. I mean, let, let's just be honest. Part of it is because you rarely do this more than once. Sometimes on a caregiving journey, you may do this more than one time. But the learning curve for this is pretty challenging. Well, that's right. And also, when it comes to filling the toolbox, uh, the only person who can fill that toolbox is the person who's being cared for, right? Uh, And if they have gotten to a point in their journey where they're no longer legally competent, they can't fill the box. Uh, So then instead of running down to Lowe's, you're running down to the courthouse Mm -hmm. and, and you're paying me or some other lawyer thousands of dollars to try to fix a problem instead of plan for what might or might not happen. Well, and I think a lot of people make the assumption, and and I hear this time and time again, oh, mom doesn't have much, or this is just really simple, so I can just go ahead and download download the forms online. We'll be fine. What do you have to say about that? Well, again, it's uh, it's not about how much you have. Mm -hmm. It's uh, it's about sometimes the moving pieces. It's about sometimes the personalities in the mm-hmm. family. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's about protecting against what can go wrong, which mm-hmm. sometimes people are focused on. But it's also for planning for opportunities to get it right. And and there is no doubt that the needs of people change over time. And if I'm thinking of uh, of of my role as an estate planner for someone who's in their 30s or 40s. I'm going to prepare a power of attorney for them, and it's going to have nuances that relate to what they own and maybe what their family situation is. But for that very same person, when I'm preparing a power of attorney for them when they're 70, it's going to be a completely different document. And when you're downloading documents from the Internet or using a statutory form or something like that, you're just doing the same thing for everybody. You know, my wife and I recently went and did some fairly light legal work, but it was setting up a will. And it wasn't terribly complicated. But what I found most helpful was not actually the documents. I didn't find the documents when we were done with them to be, frankly, all that challenging. What I found most helpful was the dialogue that I had with the attorney over the course of a couple of weeks that caused my wife and I to go home and have some discussion and to, frankly, do our homework It was really the informed discussion initiated by the lawyer, not filling in the eight pages of words. Oh, Cooper, that's that's so true. And I always encourage people, before they go see a lawyer, go in with the idea that they're going to ask the right question. And so if I go to a lawyer and I say, can you do me a will? 
or can you do me a power of attorney? I might get the answer, well, yeah, sure, and I'm going to get a will, and I'm going to get a power of attorney. But the question I need to go in with is, what do I need, why do I need it, and how does it work? And when I have that kind of conversation, it's going to lead to a completely different place. And, and that's also a critical way to find out whether or not the lawyer you're working with has the right background and experience to give you the documents you need. And, and you were talking about people downloading their own wills. I see as many plans that are not poorly uh, crafted that were just done by the wrong lawyer. And, and, and not by a lawyer who was acting improperly, a lawyer who answered the question, can you do me a will? honestly and straightforward and said, yeah, I can. And then they got a will, but it wasn't the right will. It wasn't the will they needed for their situation. So switching gears a little bit, um, I've been a support group facilitator for over 20 years for family caregivers. And oftentimes what I've heard families say when they're watching their loved ones get sick and go through a big whole situation, they automatically make this assumption that, well, pretty soon, you know, I'm in my 50s, I'm going to need to transfer my home to my children so that I protect it from uh, nursing homes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and, and this is something I have heard I can even more, t- more, more times than I have fingers. So I hear this uh, myself quite a bit. People will come in and say, gee, I've really, really simplified things. I've already transferred mm-hmm. my house to my kids. Or another version of the same thing is I put my kids on my house jointly. Uh, <laughs> so we'll pass to them by right of survivorship. This is not a good thing. And, and uh, I'm sure there are people listening to us who have done this. The reason this is not a good thing there, it, it is maybe a little more complicated than I'd like it to be. So let me, give you sure. a qu- let me give you a quick rundown. One reason is because there are just lots of other easier ways to do it that don't have any of the pitfalls I'm about to describe. But then the second things that I want to talk about are, you, you know, if you, if you transfer your home to your kids, well, they own it now. And it's, it's subject to their liabilities, the claims yeah. of their spouses. And, uh, and you can't easily get it back. I, I had a situation once where uh, a client transferred their home to their kids and they changed their mind. They wanted it back. And all of a sudden their kids were in marital problems. Mm-hmm. And the spouse of the child oh, who has a, 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 a statutory claim to that house wouldn't sign the deed to transfer it back to the parent. Well, that's not, that's not a good situation. But there also are tax problems for the kids after you die if you transfer your house to them during your life. Oh. And that's that's something that people, you know, there's no reason people would be aware of this, but your home is a is a capital asset subject to the capital gains tax. When I inherit a piece of real estate from someone as a result of their death, the basis in that real estate steps up to the to the date of death value. The, the difference between the basis and the sales price is the amount of tax. So if I bought a house for $50,000 and I sell it for $75,000, I, I, I pay a tax on the $25,000 gain. But if I inherit that house, my basis isn't 50, it's 75. I sell it for 75, I pay no tax. If someone gives me the house while they're alive, then they die and I sell it after, the, after they die, I don't get the step up, so I do pay the tax. And so that's one of those kind of unwitting things. I guess the advice I give is if you are transferring property during your life, you always need to talk to an experienced tax advisor before you do it. Yeah, and that could save you, boy, a a pile of money if you're making the right decisions and getting some good legal advice. We've got Mark Costley here in the studio. He is an attorney and founder of Clarity Legal Group. We will continue our conversation right after the break. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care on News Radio 680 WPTF. 
This is Aging Matters Care and Comfort that surrounds you on News Radio 680 WPTF. Joined by Nicole Claggett from Transitions Guiding Lights and Cooper Linton from Transitions Life Care. Here's your host, Jason Kong. Welcome back to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care on News Radio 680 WPTF. Jason Kong here with Nicole Cleggett and Cooper Linton and our guest in the studio who is, man, dropping some knowledge before the break. I'm sure he got a lot of people's attention who are listening. We've got Mark Costley in the studio with Clarity Legal Group. He is the attorney and founder with that organization. And Cooper, let's let's dive right back in because that that's this is some very good stuff. Well, there, there, there's a reason this is a popular topic. So when we start talking about legal, we, it means we end up talking about financial. As soon as we start talking about fan, financial, we get into issues of assets. Oftentimes that involves real estate. And suddenly everybody's ears perk up because they want to talk about Medicaid. Where do we get started on this discussion of Medicaid? Because it seems to me like this giant bowl of jello, and I'm hoping that you can kind of put a map on it for us. Well, Cooper, Medicaid is is uh, is you know a, a, a fascinating legal area, but a discouraging and, and and challenging thing for lay people to deal with, to say the least. And one of the things that is the one of the biggest pitfalls is how you deal with your real estate in connection with. Uh, preparing to apply for Medicaid. So, you know, my first guideline for all the listeners is when it comes to applying for Medicaid, get all your ducks in a row before you make the application. And there are some planning opportunities, and some of those planning opportunities are around real estate. The issue that Nicole raised before the break of, well, what about giving my house to my kids? Well, there, there are two potential pitfalls with that. One is the gift itself can run afoul of the five-year look-back period that is a prerequisite or framework uh, of the Medicaid process in which uh, people are penalized for making gifts, transfers that aren't for value uh, if they if they aren't uh, carefully handled. In fact, generally generally speaking, they're going to be penalized on the grounds that uh, they're presumed to be transferring their assets just to qualify. But then the other thing that's a little bit tragic about this is that when it comes to your personal residence, you don't have to transfer it to qualify. Mm-hmm. There are some assets that are countable for the purpose of testing your means to see if you are qualified for Medicaid and some that aren't. And your residence is, a, is not going to be countable in most cases. So we don't need to transfer that. Also understand that particularly if you have a, a spouse, but even if you don't, there are some really significant planning opportunities to protect that house in the long run. And so we always look at that in in connection with Medicaid planning. So I may make some people listening kind of upset right now when I say this, but um, I have found over the years that sometimes people with some significant assets make the decision that they want to transfer in advance majority of their assets over, almost all their assets over, so they can qualify for Medicaid, so they can have all their long-term care paid for without actually doing their due diligence to see what that will actually get them. And what it gets them versus what, you know, using their personal assets would have gotten them from a, an, even a, an aesthetic perspective or the, the type of care they would have received is, is quite different. And it's very difficult in this area and, and throughout the state to sometimes get a very high quality of care if you're only relying on Medicaid. Right. So when we talk about Medicaid planning from the legal perspective, well, a lot of the time 
we're talking about it from the perspective of protecting assets for the next generation. But I think that ought to be uh, that ought to be an, an issue at the table, but never the main driver of the conversation. It seems to be a lot. <laughs> uh, uh, well, it, it, it sometimes is what starts the conversation. Yeah. And, and and what any good lawyer will do, and what we always try to do, is steer the conversation to the very issue you raised. Well, what kind of care do we want to get? Where do we plan to get it? How do we plan to pay for it? Is Medicaid part of that? And if so, how? But but also, what are the other opportunities to, to organize this in a way that's going to best serve the person whose assets we're talking about? Mm-hmm. It's a big challenge. <laughs> well, I think that was part of what I was getting at when I first started talking about. We, we plan for what's going to happen after I die. We want to have this asset preservation. Well, I'm going to do some living between now and the time I die, assuming I don't die of something cataclysmic, and 11 out of 12 of us don't, we die of something that's chronic, how, what are these decisions, how do these decisions impact my quality of life, the quality of life of my caregivers, the experience that my family has, the quality of care that I may receive? And I think we're quick to start talking about asset preservation and a little slower to really talk about human quality of life and experience. Oh, Cooper, not only is is that true, but it affects planning in real ways. And one of the things that is the most discouraging thing I see, you know, one of the things that a good lawyer does is is, is, is work with a client over a long period of time, providing mm-hmm. support for the client and the family. And I see my clients change. I, I, hate, uh, I, I hate that sometimes I see a client start to feel when they get uh, to the point of having some significant dis- disabilities, either physical or, or, or memory-related or, or mental, that, that maybe their life isn't worth as much right. and that they should stop spending their money on themselves and start saving it for their kids or their grandkids. You suffer and suck and, it up. And, 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 <laughs> you know, I see my job is to say, hey, when we were talking 10 years ago about what you wanted, you know, what you told me was the most important thing in your life, the most important thing in your planning was to do everything necessary to be cared for at home and not end up in a nursing home. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, we, you knew then and you know now that sometimes a nursing home is the only option right. for you. But let's not say that uh, that you've changed your plan just because you, you, you've gotten older. Let's talk about this and make sure you're really thinking clearly about what you want. Mm-hmm. And sometimes people think leaving the money behind will heal a relationship after they've passed. They want to leave more. I mean, there's all kinds of mixed up <laughs> well, even, emotions. You know, Nicole, great kids mm-hmm. who take great care of their of their of their loved ones uh, sometimes lose their minds when it comes to dealing with money. <laughs> they do. And and uh, and one of the things they need to, to realize is that uh, the money is uh, is not theirs. Yeah. And uh, it, it's the family money, but primarily the mom's money or the dad's money. And and using that in the smartest way mm-hmm. is is what they ought to be doing. And 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 when it comes to the lawyers' work, mm-hmm. we're not only counseling folks about this, but then we're also going to document this in a way that sort of helps the family make the right decisions as they go through the process. Interestingly, uh, uh, this week I had a a site visit from an organization who helps fund the charity that um, I run, and they had a fellow with them, not a gentleman, but a fellow, and uh, she really found the model of caregiver support very interesting because she comes from Hawaii. And she said in Hawaii, it's assumed when you grow up, you will take in your elders. And when she moved to the mainland, as she calls it, she said, it is so different. And no one even gives it a thought that they'll bring their loved one in. And, and, and she's just blown away by the fact that she feels like people, a lot of times are just scheming for their parents' money, but they don't want to actually help care for them. And 
Do you, do you, I mean, do you see that as an ongoing issue when folks are coming into your office? Does it tend to be a, a lot of selfishness in folks or? You know, I, I see less selfishness than generosity and care, but mm-hmm. you see some selfishness. Mm-hmm. And the thing that surprises me is some of the places it comes up. It comes up in some of the least expected places. So, so <laughs> you, you can't just assume that it's not going to crop up. Yeah. But I see a lot of generosity mm-hmm. and love uh, uh, among people who are providing care for family members. And, and, and I see a lot of uh, frustration and anxiety. And sometimes mm-hmm. that comes with just the, the difficulty and stress of seeing you know, someone in declining health who you love. Sometimes it comes from the frustration of dealing with the financial matters. And sometimes it's, it's just not knowing who to turn to for help. Well, and in, again, and in this society, we're a dual income society, and we're just not set up the way maybe we would have been even 30, 40 years ago to care for folks. Everybody has to work. So then how do we care for a loved one while working, while taking care of children? Yeah, I, 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 uh, I see some, some, some daughters in particular mm-hmm. of, of parents who, who spend, you know, 25 years taking care of their kids and then they, they get <laughs> a two year break and then they turn into a, to a caregiver for a parent. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you've got to think about the quality of life of the caregivers as well. Yep. Uh, if, if I were, if I were wealthier than I am, if I if I had money to spread around, and we're thinking about my own uh, my own care, I'd ask the question: Really, what's the best way to provide for the quality of life for not only myself and my wife, mm-hmm. but also the family members who might be caregivers for me when I'm elderly while I'm still alive? Right. Uh, so that so that caring for me doesn't become an extraordinary burden. We've got Mark Costley in the studio. He's with Clarity Legal Group. He is the attorney and founder of that organization. We're going to continue with more uh, more questions for Mark in just a bit. Stick around. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care on News Radio 680 WPTF. This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on News Radio 680 WPTF. With your co-host, Nicole Claykett and Cooper Linton. Here's the host of Aging Matters, Jason Kong. Welcome back to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. You can find more about them at transitionslifecare.org. This is News Radio 680 WPTF. I am Jason Kong here with Nicole Cleggett and Cooper Linton. Our guest this evening is Mark Costley with Clarity Legal Group, and we're having a, a fascinating and uh, very informative discussion here with Mark Cooper. And there's something that you, you brought up during the break here that you want to jump right into. Yeah, I keep thinking we just leave the mics on during the break and then edit it as necessary. But we really talk in this. Sometimes we have this myopic view of looking at legal preparation. I have a healthcare power of attorney. I have a durable power of attorney. I have a will. uh, And I may have a HIPAA disclosure. So check, 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 check. I've got all my boxes checked. But before we went to break, you were talking about something that's a little more zooming out than just checking the boxes of having these documents prepared. It was really talking about looking at your broader family as part of your aging journey and how do you incorporate them into your planning. Not so much individual documents, but in really a strategic plan for aging. Exactly, Cooper. It gets back to the analogy I used uh, uh, at the beginning of the program when I said, Knowing what to put in the toolbox is about having some experience with the process, and 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 so you need to sit down with some folks and 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 get some advice and and, and have a dialogue about what kind of experience you'd like to have. And if part of that is making sure that your family, as caregivers, are themselves cared for and themselves in the best possible situation, sometimes the legal documents, the toolbox, needs to reflect that. 
there's no better example than a power of attorney. If you have a sort of stock or standard power of attorney that hasn't had much thought about this, it's going to say that your agent under your power of attorney doesn't have the authority to make gifts of your property. Well, so there are two problems with that. If I'm doing Medicaid planning to help someone qualify from a financial standpoint for, for, for Medicaid, we may need to be able to make some strategic gifts. But secondly, if I want to uh, make my money available to support the quality of life of my, of my family, my children, who may be taking a significant amount of their time to serve as a caregiver for me, that stock power of attorney isn't going to allow for that. So we ought to think, well, do we want to have broader gifting powers? Not only in a power of attorney, but if we plan with a revocable trust, a living trust, which a lot of people have, and we broadly recommend in our practice, well, those same powers and provisions need to be in the living trust. You know, I think um, one of the big hesitations, you know, you're, you're talking and you're very passionate about what you do, and clearly it makes a lot of sense. But there is something I hear so much from families when they're deciding about the power of attorney piece. They're scared to death, and they think they're giving up control immediately. And that is a common myth related to power of attorneys. And they're worried about their children suddenly having, you know, access to funds and bank accounts and, and all of that. Can you explain what the real reality of that is and when that's tripped and triggered? Well, so a, a power of attorney can either say on its face that it is only effective if the person is declared incapacitated, which, which doesn't mean legally incompetent, but unable to take care of their affairs, unable to make decisions, usually a decision made by a doctor as reflected in the terms of the power of attorney. So hit by a bus, suddenly. Uh, <laughs> well, or, or they have a stroke yeah. or right. they are simply unconscious. I mean, we, we dealt with this in my own family and it was, uh, we had a, a, an intracranial a vascular problem, and suddenly the person who was incredibly competent 48 hours previously was unconscious and stayed that way a while. So the power of attorney can say that it's only effective when that event happens. Now, I'm going to tell you, financial institutions hate those provisions because they don't want to do the due diligence of understanding whether or not that event, that triggering event has occurred. And I, 15 years ago in, in my practice, we stopped using incapacity powers of attorney unless the client had a strong, strong preference for it and made our default an immediate power of attorney. And this is a sharing of power immediately. But I'll offer a couple of caveats. If you're competent, your bank is not going to allow that person to take over your account uh, without, uh, without understanding why they're doing it. Uh, secondly, they don't have the, the power to do that legally. They, 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 have the, they have the authority, but they don't have the power. Okay? They, 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 they not prop, it's not a proper exercise of their power. And then lastly, of course, you can always remove and replace them if they do something, do something improper. So I, I'm relatively comfortable with these immediate powers of attorney. But there's something else I want to talk about when it comes to powers of attorney or successor trustees or any method of sharing power. If the document that you're relying on says that this person takes over for me when I'm incapacitated, that is a world that is built around this premise. You're either in or you're out. Mm -hmm. But a lot of people see a decline in their capacity over a period of time, right? So it's not black or white. What, how do you navigate the, the cognitive gray area of traditional elder care decline? Also, I advise my clients to, to keep an eye on things and to think in terms of sharing authority intentionally through some mechanism other than a power of attorney 
uh, before they reach a point of incapacity. And when I say that, I want to. This is me shouting, so everybody uh, turn down their uh, their sound. Uh, <laughs> when I when I say this, I want to say, do not own bank accounts jointly with right of survivorship with children or other people. This is not a good idea. This is this has all kinds of pitfalls. But there are other ways to share access and control to those accounts. And when you do that, then as you experience a decline over your life, uh, at some point you need help. But most people don't want to give up all control, they want to share control. And this is a way to do it. The power of attorney is kind of a you're in or you're out. Uh, If you're dealing with a trust and you say, well, I've got a successor trustee who takes over when? When I'm out. What if instead of having a successor trustee, I make my child a co-trustee, you know, sometime when I feel myself slowing down as opposed to when I'm unable? I I think that's a good strategy and people ought to be looking for this opportunity to share power simply so they, they don't lose control. Another thing that I've run into many, many times, and people are completely confused by this, is that they don't realize that when their loved one dies, so does the power of attorney. And they think they can suddenly continue to have access to these accounts and so on and so forth the moment that person dies, to even do funeral arrangements. Uh, That's a great point, Nicole. Uh, uh, A power of attorney is an agency relationship. It's me giving somebody else the power that I have, and when I die, I don't have that power. In effect, the person who takes over that power or authority when I die is the executor under my will, or if tragically I don't have a will, an administrator appointed by the court. But in both cases, the most important thing to know about that is they don't have any power until they are appointed by the court. The executor I name in my will I, is someone I have nominated to be the executor. But they aren't the executor until the court says, yep, you're the executor. Now, they're going to, if the person I nominate wants to serve, they're, the court's going to appoint that person 100% of the time, but they don't have any powers until the court appoints them. Yeah, I've, um, I've encouraged folks to also have a conversation about trusts. You mentioned that earlier. Um, there's some really complicated issues that extend past someone's death. And so the person who was your caregiver may well now be your executor. And so the burden of your physical care has changed, but there's still a burden of fiduciary responsibility. Is that a fair thing? Yeah, and I, I think we, we believe in our practice that trusts are one of the best ways to manage your affairs. And a lot of folks will think that, uh, that trusts relate primarily to, to tax planning or, or maybe uh, uh, you know, people who inherit large amounts of money. This, is, this couldn't be further from the truth. It's just a management arrangement. It's, it's a contract that, that someone creates to set out some rules for how they want some things managed, usually specific property, sometimes all of their property. And it can control how your property is managed during your life, such as, oh, I'm going to share control over these assets with my adult child who's going to be my co-trustee or, or, or more frequently with my spouse who's going to be my co-trustee. And then when I become incapacitated, I've got someone to manage those assets for me. At my death, those assets are managed outside of the court with no, with, with no fees to the court, no extra delays or anything like that. And then that same trust agreement can be a vehicle for holding assets for people who inherit from me. Minor children, anybody under the age of 18 can't inherit legally. They have to have some other vehicle for inheritance. The trust is the best arrangement. But it may also be a disabled person who needs to have a special needs trust or even possibly an adult child who just benefit from asset protection. 
He is Mark Costley with Clarity Legal Group. Mark, thank you so much for coming in this evening. We really appreciate it. It's been great to be here. And you can find more about Clarity Legal Group at claritylegalgroup.com, claritylegalgroup.com, or you can call the office at 919-484-0012. That's 919-484-0012. We are out of time for this week. Thank you so much for joining us. want to encourage you to go to WPTF.com and head over to the Aging Matters section to find this episode as well as previous episodes uh, for your consumption. It's, there's a, just a wealth of information there. On behalf of Nicole Cleggett and Cooper Linton, I am Jason Kong. Thank you so much for listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care on News Radio 680 WPTF. Have a great night. You've been listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on News Radio 680 WPTF. For more information, log on transitionslifecare.org.